From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He supported it then and supports it now. Jared Polis voted to start impeachment proceedings when he was in Congress. As governor now, he stands by congressional Democrats who are moving ahead. But he says, I don't understand all these people who say, we want to impeach, we want to impeach, and somehow get excited like this is some good thing. In our regular conversation at the state capitol, Polis also talks about vaping as lung illnesses increase in Colorado. Plus, he calls for a minimum level of school security in the state. And the governor's Twitter game, which leads him to talk about his dad. Later, a primetime show about classical music. We want every American, not necessarily to love classical music, but to at least include some on their playlist. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our regular conversation with Democratic Governor Jared Polis at the state capitol begins with a different capitol, the one in Washington, where an impeachment inquiry moves ahead. I asked Governor Polis if he supports impeaching the president. Uh, You might recall my last job. I was actually a member of United States Congress, and in the last Congress, I uh, voted for moving forward with impeachment hearings. And I think it's about time. Um, When there's a lot of smoke, it's Congress's job as an independent part of the government to fully investigate. And if the charges warrant it, ultimately draw up the articles of impeachment. But at this stage, uh, it's absolutely appropriate to have an investigation, whether it's the president trying to use his conversations with foreign leaders to further his own political career for personal reasons, or a number of the allegations that have been raised over the years, of course, we should have an unbiased uh, investigation. That vote that you mentioned when you were in Congress came in 2017. When you cast that 2017 vote, you tweeted that you did so, quote, with great reflection and sadness. I wonder if we could talk about the sadness piece as it pertains to what is ahead for our country. Nancy Pelosi has the appropriate attitude on this. I mean, I don't understand all these people who say, we want to impeach, we want to impeach, and somehow get excited like this is some good thing. Um, It's Congress doing its job, um, and it's not something that should be gleefully investigated. It's something that is doing our duty uh, as Congress, uh, as Americans, to make sure that we have independent accountability and that the rule of law is supreme at the end of the day. This country can feel so divided politically sometimes. Do you think that this will make the sort of political fissures worse? Well, I hope it restores confidence in the system. Uh, You know, it's really the system doing its job, you know, whether somebody's a Republican, independent, Democrat. uh, We want a functioning system with checks and balances because we're going to have Democratic and Republican presidents in the future. What's important is that no president is above the law and that we support, above all else, the rule of law in this country. And yet, inherently, there's politics in this, right? Well, and that's the challenge, is to try to remove the politics from it and to say, look, this is more akin to a judicial process. In fact, uh, the way that the Founding Fathers designed the impeachment process is effectively for the House to act as prosecuting attorneys and for the Senate to effectively act as the jury. Just to reflect back on that 2017 vote... Surely you were aware at that time that Republicans controlled the Senate as they do today. In order for a president to be impeached, the Senate has to be involved. Seems like that's not politically likely, given the numbers there. Well, again, I don't think it's political. I I fully trust the integrity of the Republican and Democratic members of the Senate. They're going to follow the rule of law. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident in that process. 
I want to move on to the fact that mail ballots for November's election here in Colorado go out in less than two weeks. Why don't we talk about two statewide issues, starting with Proposition CC. It would allow the state to keep money that would otherwise be refunded to taxpayers under TABOR, the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. And uh, this money would go to education and transportation. For the record, do you support CC? Uh, of course, yeah. I, you know, we, we have to do something uh, to repair our roads and bridges. And this is just a common sense updating of arbitrary formulas that many local jurisdictions have already updated, including very conservative ones, have effectively passed similar initiatives uh, in conservative cities and counties across our state. So it's about time for the state to do that. There's another statewide initiative, uh, all with regard to sports betting as well. Indeed, we'll talk about DD in just a moment. Uh, Will you campaign for Prop CC? Will we see you out there Pounding the paper. Well, I think that's what I'm doing now because you asked me about it, right? So sure, what anybody asks, I'm always happy to talk about why this is important. I think what a governor can do is say, look, passage of this initiative is a difference between funding this lane expansion, funding this bridge, and not funding it. It's a difference between uh, lowering tuition. We can try to provide information to voters about what the difference is uh, with regard to whether that passes or not and what, what that means to voters. I mean, I've seen very little campaigning on either side of this issue. I don't know, is that a deliberate strategy, an indication perhaps that even those who are backing the measure aren't entirely enthusiastic? Um, you know, I think people are just sort of starting to pay attention to the election period. I would fully expect that, of course, there's a robust campaign uh, for the passage of CC, and I'm uh, certainly helping them however I can. Absent new funding, let's at least be able to use the funding we have and really update an outdated formula uh, that arbitrarily says the state can't invest that money into roads that we already collect. On to Prop DD, again, on the statewide ballot to enable sports betting in Colorado. Uh, With proceeds going to the state's water plan, it would generate on average about $16 million a year for the first five years. Uh, But here's the thing. The water plan is expected to cost a minimum of $20 billion between now and 2050. Are DD's revenues so small as to be insignificant in the scheme of things? And, and what will Coloradans actually get water-wise? Yeah, I, I don't look at this so much as a water plan solution. I look at it really as just an opportunity for our state because other states are already benefiting from sports betting. Uh, there's thousands of jobs that could be created in Colorado. It's really just a question of whether we have this industry here or Coloradans interact with people in other states, uh, with companies in other states. So I'm supportive of this measure. Uh, I I don't think anybody should think that this somehow meets all of our water funding needs. You you don't see it as a water plan solution, you said. Do you think that's just in there to sweeten the pot a little bit? Well, I mean, it's certainly uh, any revenues that come out of it that are are greater than the cost would go towards the water plan. That that can be helpful. But as you indicated, the dollar figures are not sufficient to meet the water needs of the state. Given that DD won't be a windfall for water, how do you think Colorado pays for this water plan in the face of a warming climate? Well, last year, we were able to succeed in getting $10 million from the general fund uh, towards the water plan. Uh, We think that it's also important that there's some other dedicated revenues that help go to it. In a growing state, water is absolutely critical. And uh, under Governor Hickenlooper, we pulled together our first state comprehensive water plan but a lot of work to, remains done to make sure it gets implemented. I mean, $10 million sounds almost quaint in the face of those billions required over the next several decades. Have you given some thought to what a new source of revenue might be? Uh, again, I think, I think it calls for the kind of dedicated revenue source 
that would actually make sure we are prepared for not only the water needs of where we are today, but the water needs of our future. Um, it's something that we're certainly willing to work with the Republicans and Democrats uh, with in the legislature. It sounds like early days. Uh, well, I think, you know, again, you indicated this year there is something in that realm. There's DD that's on the ballot. Uh, there will also be a discussion of the budget and the general fund. But yes, either one of those or all of those certainly leave open the issues about its full implementation. I'd like to talk about a different issue that's been getting a lot of headlines recently, and that's vaping, e-cigarettes. They're being blamed for several deaths around the country, and Colorado is investigating at least eight illnesses, most of them serious enough to have sent people to the hospital. Uh, one of those illnesses was Piper Johnson, an 18-year-old, was on her way to Colorado for college when she got ill. Her mom testified recently before a congressional committee. I'm here to tell you about the biggest blessing in my life, which is the fact that my oldest child is still alive. What started as an exciting rite of passage turned into a terrifying near-death experience that involved a week-long hospital stay where my daughter went from a healthy, vibrant 18-year-old to a patient who needed rapidly increasing amounts of oxygen and medications to treat her declining health. Colorado has the highest rate of teen vaping in the country, uh, and the last time we spoke, I asked you about that, and you suggested setting a state tax for the first time on vaping products. The legislature considered that last session. You supported the measure, but it died. Now lawmakers are talking about raising the minimum age to buy any kind of tobacco to 21. Some Colorado cities have done that. Would you support raising the minimum age statewide? You know, we're, we're happy to work with legislators on any data-driven ways that we can reduce teen vaping, teen smoking. Um, the data shows that the price point is extremely relevant and the most important factor. Right now, vaping has a loophole. They don't pay the tobacco tax. It, it's, exe it's exempt. So it's effectively subsidized compared to cigarettes and other tobacco compounds. What we had tried to do, and as you indicated, it was one of our biggest setbacks last legislative session. While we got the House to agree, we weren't able to get the Senate to agree to say, why don't we put forward to the voters? We would have on the ballot right now closing that vaping loophole. And it's something that we haven't given up on. We certainly plan to pursue it. And of course, uh, we're open to many other strategies. You indicated uh, raising the age. I also uh, directed my staff to look into how at the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, we can use the tools we now have under law to further reduce teenage vaping. Well, what do you think session. about raising the age? Well, I mean, as I said, we're very open to any data-driven way to reduce teen vaping in You'd our like state. to see the data, perhaps, on this? Uh, well, again, raising it to 21, of course we want to see the data. It can be helpful. If that's something legislators are interested in sending to our desk, we will work with them on it. Uh, again, the price is going to be even more important because what you have is, um, just as you have with drinking, 21, you know, you have a, an 18-year-old, a 19-year-old, a 21-year-old, the 21-year-old goes in and buys and, and gives it or sells it to other people. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't help and doesn't reduce it in some cases. It, it can be part of an overall strategy. What I don't want to see is that as a substitute for doing anything else. Um, so again, very open to raising the age of 21, but in no way, shape, or form should that be, let's check this box and do nothing else around vape, vaping safety or underage vaping. In mid-September, the Colorado Health Department issued a statement that said, quoting here, while we can't pinpoint the specific cause of these serious lung illnesses, we do know vaping products are poorly regulated and may contain or generate chemicals that are unsafe, potentially making people sick. One of the positive uh, silver linings to these terrible tragedies is that it's raised awareness about the dangers of vaping with parents and with kids. Um, you know, I've heard from many parents who just, you know, 
tolerated it before and now are talking to their kids about it. And I've heard from, of course, many responsible young people who weren't aware of the health risks uh, before this latest round of health coverage. So hope, and, and we can we can amplify that. We can uh, do what we can to kind of elevate this as a health issue. But again, none of that should be used as an excuse not to try to close the vaping loophole. Which means waiting for the legislature to reconvene in January. Uh, they're the only ones who can do that. Yeah. In fact, the voters, frankly, are the only one who can do that. That's so, right, because any, you, any yeah. change to the tax would then go to the ballot afterwards. Yeah. We aired Plastic Week on Colorado Matters recently, a series about ubiquitous plastic waste. Uh, It is literally raining microplastics. And we reported that environmentalists will ask lawmakers for a ban, perhaps on plastic bags or polystyrene takeout containers. Uh, Should Colorado ban some single-use plastics? Well, you know, plastic waste really plagues our land, our oceans. It's inside of us. You might have seen recent articles that kids and adults have plastic in them. Uh, It's one of the areas that we want to empower our local communities to lead the way. Uh, Of course, there's a state role, and we we did part of that when we signed into law the Front Range Waste Diversion Enterprise Grant Program to really build recycling capacity around plastics. And there are many communities across our state that already have bag fees or other uh, models that they've implemented to reduce plastic waste. When you say we really want to empower our local communities, I hear, let Cities and counties make that determination. The state shouldn't be in that role. Well, again, the state should play a role in the recycling capacity. Um, There's not the capacity today, even if we wanted to, to recycle all the plastics used in our state. So we can work, uh, especially in underserved areas of our state, to build that capacity. Uh, And as I said, many leaders and communities across our state are uh, trying different policies. And it's one of those, there's not one policy that you can do and say this solves it all. But I'd like to see that creativity across our different cities and counties in our state around how they can reduce plastic waste. Versus, say, a statewide ban? Well, again, it's, 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 I don't think many of the towns have bag deposit charges. There's others that have instituted their own recycling, or I think one of the things you that Denver did is, well, they, they all have different, you know, garbage pickup. Uh, Denver just added a, they recently added a fee on, uh, that they added to their garbage pickup that's going to recycling capacity. So every community is different and that's completely appropriate. I want to talk about a recent state audit critical of Colorado's school safety efforts, saying that there's no coordination, that some programs duplicate each other, and that nobody's measuring what actually works. What do you think could be done to fix that? You know, it's both the the beauty um, and also the danger of a local control system is that practices are all over the place. What that means is school districts are autonomous entities that run their own schools. Uh, Even within a school district, a lot is devolved to the principal level. So it's a question of what type of safety assurances can we ensure statewide, And how can we make sure that every school district and school is empowered to do those? And so uh, it's no surprise to me that there's great differences and disparities. It's a question of getting everybody on the same page. And that means Republicans and Democrats in our state legislature and school districts. Well, what we can do to make sure that people are safe to go to school no matter where they live. One person who's thinking a lot about this is John Castillo, whose son Kendrick was killed in last spring's shooting at STEM School Highlands Ranch. Uh, Why don't we listen to a little of what he had to say. I'm advocating for school safety and uh, radical change in what we've done since Columbine. Um, There's been incremental improvements, and I applaud those. But in the time that we're living in, I think we need to go to, you know, school safety 2.0 and ramp things up. And, And that's kind of what I'm advocating when I'm not grieving. Is there a change you'd like to make? What would it be? 
You know, the data guides, the policies and things we need to do to improve school safety means things like single point of entry. That's a capital issue. School resource officers play a very constructive role in school safety. Making sure that counseling is available at school for for kids in need is, is so important to have somebody to talk to, not just around reducing school violence, but also reducing the suicide rate. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, and we look forward to working with uh, the Republican and Democratic legislators to really up the bar on school safety. And to bring consistency, perhaps, to some of those issues you've just mentioned. Yeah, I, I think the best way to think about it is to bring kind of the minimum standards across the state on those issues. You will always have school districts that want to go above and beyond and do more. More, and, and maybe they have the resources to do more in that area. But it's really a question of how we make sure that no matter where you live in our state, you can be safe at school. During the legislative session last spring, you were clear from the start about your two priorities, full-day kindergarten and reducing health care costs. And they passed. Have you set specific priorities for the new session similar to those? Well, certainly with regard to health care, the work isn't done. While we brought down pricing in the individual market by an average of 18.2%, we continue our work to save people money on employer-based health care, small group and large group, expanding the peak alliance model to statewide and to other counties. What is that? This is the model that in Summit County led to a 41.5% reduction in insurance rates next year. I mean, that's just transformational in terms of savings. Uh, We are working with groups on the ground in La Plata and Eagle County, as well as a statewide group to implement these savings statewide, essentially to give customers across different plans better negotiating leverage with providers to have lower rates. And we think that this has uh, remarkable potential to bring down rates for everybody in Colorado in future years. With regards to uh, early childhood education, we plan to continue our efforts to expand preschool last year. The legislature expanded preschool by over 5,000 slots for kids, and we hope that that progress continues. Do you think that you might have a less ambitious agenda of new policies, in part because next year is an election year? Well, I don't think it's so much about the election year. It's about always focusing on the North Star of what makes Colorado more livable, reduces costs for families, saves people money, and protects our Colorado way of life. You have called uh, in the past on lawmakers to either reform or revoke the state's death penalty. A bill to do that failed last session. Is that something you'd like to see in the upcoming? Well, again, uh, that's something that I've been very clear that if the legislature passes, I would sign. Um, It didn't seem to have the votes in the Senate. It might still not have the votes. But if it has the votes and it reaches my desk, then they can expect me to sign it. To Colorado's U.S. Senate race, former Governor John Hickenlooper, who is running for president, entered the Democratic primary for Senate last month. Uh, He wants to unseat incumbent Republican Cory Gardner. And almost immediately, the National Party, through the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, jumped in to endorse Hickenlooper. That has angered many of the other candidates. Should the National Party have let the race develop before backing Hickenlooper? Well, look, everybody decides, uh, you know, who they want to back. I think that the unaffiliated voters and Democrats are going to have a a choice uh, in the uh, primary about who they want to nominate to take on Cory Gardner. John Hickenlooper, because of his work as governor, starts off with a strong lead. But, of course, any race is, is wide open, and it's always a question of just making the case to the voters about why he'd be the best senator. Is it fair to say that it's wide open when one candidate is getting such major backing from the party? 
Well, I, you know, again, I, the, the party, if you mean the, the DNC, they're always neutral in these things. Our county parties are neutral. The state party is neutral. I think you're referring to a wing of the Senate party under Chuck Schumer. That's, but the party is very neutral. Um, there'll be a state convention. Anybody who gets a third of the votes, the grassroots up can get on the ballot. Uh, there's, what, nine or ten people running. I don't expect they'll all make the ballot, but, um, you know, many of them have the resources and momentum and support to get on that ballot. It doesn't sound like you have any objections with how things unfurled. Here. Well, I think anybody, you know, anybody can run. That's the beauty of our system, uh, Republican or Democrat, or if you belong to a minor party or no party at all. Candidates just uh, can gather signatures and, and get on the ballot. I mean, the voters uh, deserve, you know, a choice, and that's the way elections have worked and will work. Uh, it's part of part and parcel of what they do. John. Uh, Hickenlooper, um, you know, left a very strong economy in the state and did a great job as governor. And uh, there's other great candidates that are making the case that they want to go to the Senate, too. And, and that's what this is, that's what elections are all about. Will you make an endorsement before the primary? Uh, I'm, you know, again, my, my priority will be uh, making sure that we can bring the, the party together uh, after we have a nominee. You're not prepared to endorse Hickenlooper right now? I haven't endorsed anyone? anybody. Um, you know, I've been obviously very busy. Uh, I don't think having a heavy hand on the political side would would make sense. Um, I think it's up to the voters to decide who we want to nominate, who'd be the most likely candidate to win, and who'd be the best senator. Okay, we've noticed that like a lot of politicians, uh, Jared Polis, you have a Twitter game. And in this case, I'm actually less interested in what you tweet about policy than some other things. Uh, in August, you tweeted, if you come across a nuclear bomb, please don't try to dismantle it yourself. And there was a link to a Discover Magazine article about how scientists disarm bombs. Uh, earlier this month, a link to a story about a vast network of microbes that some scientists call the underground Galapagos. Uh, what do you tend to read when you have downtime? Uh, you know, I read pretty voraciously, uh, as you know, you just sort of all over the internet, um, different, you know, information, news, science. Obviously, I'm a Rockies fan, didn't go so well this year, but I, I certainly tweet about Colorado sports team. Broncos haven't started out that great, but we're, we're still hopeful. So I, I you know, I, I certainly keep the content uh, varied and just update people on interesting things that I think, uh, you know, can further the uh, knowledge and hope and inspiration. Yeah, there's a lot of science on your Twitter feed. I wonder where that love of science came from. Where, do, what, what do you well, remember? my father's a scientist. He uh, has a PhD in physics. That's the reason I was born in Colorado. My father, after he got his PhD in physics, uh, got a job at NOAA in Boulder. Uh, my sister's a scientist as well. Uh, but certainly, um, science, technology are very exciting areas. And I think being future-oriented and making sure that the future isn't something that just happens, but that change works for us is really an important challenge of leadership. Governor, thank you. Thank you. Governor Jared Polis, we speak regularly at the state capitol. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. By now, I'm sure that we're not breaking the news that CBD is everywhere. It's the new kale, the new superfood, whatever you want to call it. But what is it? And how did something that is made from cannabis, which is still illegal in many states, become part of a never-ending national wellness industry spin cycle? Find out on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR News. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of Colorado's fiercest disability rights advocates will be honored tonight, posthumously. For decades, attorney Carrie Ann Lucas fought for parents and children with disabilities. She died earlier this year, and it's the ACLU recognizing her life's work. Lucas fought for better access to public facilities and against the repeal of Obamacare. 
In 2017, before a key congressional vote, she took part in a two-day sit-in at Republican Senator Cory Gardner's office. She led fellow protesters in a chant as they were arrested. Rather go to jail than to die without Medicaid. Rather and when she was the last one left, she refused to help police move her wheelchair or her ventilator. I'm not resisting, but I'm not cooperating okay. Take in my arrest. Take her property from her. She's under arrest. Take her phones. One of her longtime friends is Julie Riskin, who leads Colorado's Cross Disability Coalition. She told me Lucas became a lawyer because of a personal experience with discrimination. She decided to adopt a daughter, and that was awesome. And she adopted another child. Both children had disabilities. The adoption was going forward, and then the family that had given up this child decided they didn't want the child living with two other disabled people and disrupted the adoption and took her back. And unfortunately put this child who used a wheelchair in an inaccessible home. Most people would just get depressed and give up because that was an awful, horrifying experience. Carrie went to law school because she wanted to practice family law and she wanted to disrupt the pervasive bias that said people who have disabilities can't be parents. There's a history of that, I guess. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As someone with a disability, I can say when my kids were growing up, they weren't afraid of the boogeyman. They were afraid of social services. With the idea that people with disabilities don't have the ability to take care of children like able-bodied parents. Exactly. Uh, So what specifically did Carrie fight for? So she actually got a law passed last year, and that took away the presumption that disability is a problem. When Human Services goes in and and investigates, they have a list of risk factors that they look at. Until last year, disability was on that, when actually, particularly when the child might have a disability, we see it as an advantage because we understand we can provide them a context of disability as a positive thing, of disability pride. And that was something Carrie was really into. It seems to me that the natural thing would just be to test it. In other words, if you're going to contend that having a disability is somehow making you a less capable parent, prove it. Like, as opposed to just making the assumption. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world. Unfortunately, there are not lawyers banging down the door to represent people with disabilities. So many parents with disabilities were in these awful situations where they were being unfairly targeted and there was no one to stand up for them and say, prove it. When you're a subject of an investigation by the government, you can't just say prove it. You don't have that power Mm. unless you have a lawyer by your side. And Carrie was that lawyer for many, many people. And then in the last couple years of her life, the state actually recruited her and said, work for us. Help us train other lawyers and judges for a better system. The boogeyman said, come help me. In other words, those that perhaps she and her family were most afraid of then enlisted her help. Yes. That's fascinating. I think she ended up adopting four children. She did. Now young adults with uh, severe disabilities themselves. Gary had a rare form of muscular dystrophy. How did she manage? I'm smiling when you said that because Carrie was a force of nature. She didn't manage. She just made things happen. And she gave her kids an incredibly full life that would exhaust any parent, disabled or not. They were a very Colorado 
family. So they went camping, they went fishing, they went in the mountains. All of her kids were involved in all sorts of activities. Her kids were integrated in the schools. She had high expectations of all of them. Being a mother was her number one job, and she made it happen. But she did that also while working full time and living with a significant disability. And I don't want to sound glib or make it sound like it was easy. Of Mm -hmm. course, it wasn't easy, but it was what was really important to her. And being a single parent has challenges for anyone with or without a disability. Okay, so you mentioned her activism on behalf of families. I have to think about the last time that Carrie Ann Lucas was on Colorado Matters, and it was around when a ballot measure was being debated about um, ending one's life if you were in some sort of terminal situation. And she was fiercely opposed to this. Voters approved this in in 2016. But why don't we just hear a little bit of Carrie Ann Lucas's reasoning for opposing it? As an individual with a severe disability myself, I'm a quadriplegic. I I use a ventilator uh, full-time. I have seen how my life has been devalued by the medical system. I've been discouraged from seeking medical treatments before in the past, medical treatments that have extended my life by more than a decade. I've also seen my children who also have disabilities. I've seen their lives be devalued. And so she thought of the Colorado End-of-Life Options Act as a slippery slope. The medical system does devalue those of us with disabilities because they see non-disabled is the goal. They see being, quote-unquote, healthy is the goal, and they equate being healthy with having a perfect body. And when someone has a major life change of any kind, whether it is acquiring a disability, getting a divorce, losing their home, that can be very devastating, and it can lead to depression. All of us grow up in a world that devalues disability and says disability is a tragedy, not that disability is a normal part of the human existence. So when one acquires a disability, especially as an adult... Through an accident or something like that. Through an accident, an illness, whatever, Mm -hmm. one can be terrified, devastated, and they're depressed, and they go to a doctor and say, I want to end my life, and they might have a condition that without intervention could result in death. Our fear is that a doctor would say, oh, of course you don't want to live like that. Instead of what we all do or should do when we see someone who is so depressed that they're suicidal, which is we intervene, we show them options, say, you know, you can always make that decision later. You believe that this devaluing of the lives of people with disabilities uh, may have led to her death. Absolutely, I believe that. Last January, she caught a cold, which when you're on a ventilator is serious. She got an infection in her lung and her trachea. She knew from experience and her doctors knew from experience that she needed a very specific type of antibiotic. This is very common for people with disabilities. When you've had a lot of infections or hospitalizations, you get where there's only a cup, one or maybe two antibiotics you can use because you, your body becomes resistant. Mm. Her doctor said she needed this. Her insurance company, United Healthcare, refused to pay for it. She had filed 30 appeals by that time on different issues with United Health Insurance, which she had to take as a state employee above her Medicaid and Medicare, which actually do provide the care that she would have needed. But by that point, she had to start with a less effective antibiotic, which really caused a cascade of problems. We asked United Healthcare for a response to those allegations. They issued the following statement. We are saddened to hear of Ms. Lucas's passing. 
While we cannot provide any comment on her specific case because of privacy rules, we work extensively with members suffering from chronic conditions to help them get access to care covered under their plans. This is Colorado Matters, and if you're just joining us, we are remembering the lawyer and disability rights activist Carrie Ann Lucas. I'm speaking with her friend Julie Riskin of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. Back to her activism, uh, you know, listening at the beginning to that protest in Senator Gardner's office, I guess, how how would I put this? She was not always a diplomat. Oh, no. (laughs) Absolutely, she could be assertive. Yeah. And a lot of people took that as anger. And this applies to people of color often experience this and people with disabilities. When we're assertive and we're strong and we're clear, people think that that's anger. They take that tone as anger. And a lot of times with people with disabilities, people think that we're angry at having a disability, which she wasn't. She loved her life. She was angry at inaccessibility. She was angry when people didn't follow the laws. And she was angry when people made assumptions about her without bothering to learn the facts. That would make anyone angry. But she wasn't an angry person. She was actually a very content and happy person. But she was very strong and very assertive. And often when we don't act like apologists, people think that we're angry. She was not ever going to apologize for her existence or the existence of her children. We reached out to another activist, Kaylin Heffernan, mm-hmm. the rap musician. She was also at that 2017 protest at Senator Gardner's office. She's considerably younger than Carrie and uh, viewed her as a driving force for the movement. Carrie and Lucas uh, fought really hard every day. And I know that she would want us to continue fighting and continue sharing what we know with the rest of our community because everything we do is complicated. What kind of gap does Carrie Lucas's passing leave in the fight for disability rights here in Colorado? A huge, uh, unfillable gap, um, particularly on the issue of parenting with a disability. She was the person. She'd lived it. She lived it and she had the legal background. What do you think is a, a passion project of hers, though, that that might get carried on? Or what is next in the fight that she was ready to take on? I know that what she was planning to do in 2019 was spending time really going public about our broken health care system of the, that she had experienced in the past, you know, for her whole life, but particularly in the past year. How would Carrie feel about you kind of fawning on her right now? She would be anywhere between, you know, rolling her eyes or ready to kick my butt. Um, In the disability community, there's a term we use called inspiration porn. It feels really awful when people think that when you have a disability and you live your life, that that somehow makes you inspirational. Because it isn't. Even the situation that we're dealing with, the anger and outrage over what happened to her with the insurance company, that happens to people every single day. The reason we're talking about it, and and this is exactly what Carrie would want, is because she did have a lot of accomplishments and she has the megaphone, as as one of our friends put it. But don't turn it into inspiration porn. That's right. Julie, thanks for being with us and sorry for your loss. Thank you. Julie Riskin leads the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. She joined us in March to remember her friend, activist and attorney Carrie Ann Lucas. 
Tonight, the ACLU honors Lucas posthumously with the Carl Whitehead Memorial Award, given to someone who's devoted themselves to an important contemporary issue. This time of year prompts an age-old question, one we got through Colorado Wonders. What causes the leaves to change color in the fall? CPR's Haley Sanchez has the answer. Our question asker wants to know if it's the drop in temperature or the reduced amount of sunlight in the fall that triggers the leaves to change color. It's a little bit of both to actually show us the colors that we get. That's Dan West with the State Forest Service. He says the longer days tell the tree to put down what's called an abscission layer. That's just a fancy way to say the leaf becomes detached from the rest of the tree. That process stops chlorophyll, the green pigment in plants, from replenishing. The greens drop out and we're left with the yellows and the reds and the oranges that are typically in there. So the cooler evenings trigger those sugars to turn more of a reddish color. And what really causes the best colors is to have sunny days followed up by cool nights. West says the recent record warm weather has held fall at bay, so prime leaf changing season is a little behind schedule this year. The leaves typically change from mid-September through early October. We've pretty much seen a delayed some places one week, some places two weeks, and we're still waiting to see what happens in the central and lower third of the state. He thinks of the state in thirds, the northern, central, and southern. Aspens higher in elevation and farther north will experience peak color sooner than those located lower in elevation and farther south. West says the highest elevations are just starting to turn gold, but when the rest of Colorado catches up, he says we're expected to have beautiful fall colors this year. We need those cool nights to really show up, and we need those sunny days to burn off the chlorophyll. And if we continue to get that, I think we're going to have a brilliant show this year. Near-peak conditions are expected in the northwest portion of the state this weekend. Much of Colorado will see fall colors during the first two weeks of October. And the eastern portion of the state will see trees peak as late as the third week of next month. I'm Haley Sanchez, CPR News. There's a new travel show with an unusual lens. Now Hear This on PBS traces the lives of history's greatest musicians by taking viewers across Europe and Africa. The host is Scott Yu, conductor of the Colorado College Music Festival and the Mexico City Philharmonic. He explores the places classical composers like Handel and Bach lived and worked, and he meets living musicians and instrument makers. The premiere took him to Italy, where he was handed a $15 million Stradivari violin to play. And this is it, an excerpt from Vivaldi's The Four Seasons. Now Hear This airs Friday evenings on PBS through mid-October. And Scott, you welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. What goes through your mind when you are holding a $15 million instrument? Actually, I think that was a 15 million euro instrument. So oh, even... even... <laughs> <laughs> um, don't want to drop it. That's number one, I would say. You know, obviously it's a privilege. There are not many of these things around, So when you get to play one, it's a lot of fun. You just marvel at the fact that 
back then in 1714, they knew how to do something better than we know how to do it now. I, I just still find that amazing that we've made such advancements in technology. We we are so good at growing food for many, many people. Uh, we're really great at transportation now, transmitting information. But when it comes to a vibrating box of wood, <laughs> they were better at it then than they are now. You're very funny. Do you get to be funny as much as you'd like on the show? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, they always encourage me on the show to uh, have a lot of energy. And sometimes... I'm jet lagged or sick, and it's hard to summon that energy, but you know, you, you find a way. I understand that you took inspiration from the late Anthony Bourdain and his food and travel shows. Uh, how would you say his approach, you know, to kind of food tourism influenced your approach to this kind of music travel show? Well, you know, Anthony Bourdain, obviously, he invented the entire genre, and, and you just have to tip your hat to his genius. The show is actually very mission-driven. We want every American, not necessarily to love classical music, but to at least include some classical music on their playlist. So if you like the Rolling Stones, or you like Madonna, or Frank Sinatra, or... Um, or ta- maybe Taylor Swift. Should we get a more modern... Taylor Swift. <laughs> That's great. That's terrific. But uh, we also think that it's, you know, really nice to listen to a little classical music as well. And uh, that's what we're encouraging people to do. Yeah, I mean, that's not a small challenge, a primetime show about classical music. Did you think such a thing was possible? Well, you know, when we started this process, the showrunner, Harry Lynch, assured me, he said, uh, we will never see primetime TV with this show. So forget that. And, of course, now this is the first show about classical music on primetime TV in 51 years. So we're really, you know, we're really proud of that. And, and also we know that's a big responsibility. We have to represent our art form very well. And in a way that's inclusive of many, many people. You know, not everybody listens to classical music, but everybody likes to eat. And uh, lots of people like travel and lots of people like foreign cultures and foreign lands. So if you integrate that into a show... Uh, very much like Mr. Bourdain did, you know, you might have something. The one advantage we have uh, that Mr. Bourdain doesn't is that you can consume music over the TV, but you cannot consume food through the TV. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, the one disadvantage we have is that food is something everybody eats, and classical music is not something that everybody consumes. So we have a disadvantage and an advantage. Each episode focuses on the life and music of a different composer, Vivaldi, Bach, Scarlatti, Handel. As I said, you visit locations across Europe and Africa where these composers lived and worked. What were some of the most surprising discoveries you made filming the show? I guess the first surprise to me, and it's a surprise that's shared by all of my colleagues, the top classical musicians uh, really in the world, when we found out Vivaldi's music was largely lost, 92% of Vivaldi's music was lost oh my. until the mid-1930s. You know, there were a few operas and the Vivaldi Four Seasons, and really, that was it. Oh, this is a guy, he was a priest, he ran a girls' school, and he 
and he only wrote six or seven pieces. Of course, historically, we knew that was not true, but nobody knew where all of the music was. And then we trace the steps and we find it in the episode. And that's that was really shocking and also thrilling. I got to actually read from and touch through all the manuscripts. At the very beginning of the episode, we visit Venice. And the very first scene is a world premiere performance of an oratorio by Vivaldi. This is something that was not heard since Vivaldi was alive, and maybe not even heard when Vivaldi was alive. In a certain sense, our understanding and perception of Vivaldi changes every day because nearly every year a new piece of Vivaldi is unearthed. That's remarkable. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're speaking with Scott Yu, who's conductor of the Colorado College Music Festival and who has a new music-themed travel show on PBS in prime time called Now Hear This. I want to talk a little bit about Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, that episode hasn't aired yet. There are a few preview clips where you describe how filming that episode really changed your opinion of some of his music. Uh, how did that happen? How did your sense of Bach, who is very well known, evolve? What we were exploring in this episode was Bach's dance music, and particularly his secular dance music that he wrote in a small German village called Curtin um, when he was working for a young prince named Prince Leopold. And that's the action sort of centers around that. I got an opportunity to play some music accompanied by a Baroque dance troupe, probably the greatest Baroque dance troupe in the world. And I played with them, and it almost felt like they were playing me. It was really... A, odd, odd, out-of-body experience watching these people dance and your hands almost kind of mimic their movements Mm. and your music sounds different because they're dancing with you. And I have never experienced that. I also think that so many people associate classical music with sitting down, you know, in a hall. Uh, so it's nice to see it as dance. You traveled to Spain and Morocco to study Domenico Scarlatti, whom you describe as the greatest composer you've never heard of. I, that sounds like a great reason yeah. to devote an episode to him. Why have we never heard of, of Scarlatti and why should we? Well, Scarlatti's output was limited to 555 keyboard sonatas, essentially. And they are so radical. I mean, some of them especially are so radical. I mean, they almost sound like modern music. ¶¶ 
because maybe he didn't write for orchestra or he didn't write for violin or uh, what have you, maybe his output is sort of consumed more by people who are real, real piano music lovers than classical music lovers. But he is every bit the genius of all the other people on our series. It is staggering how much music he wrote and also how inventive his music was. I mean, he, he really was a precursor to someone like Chopin, precursor to someone like, like Brahms. Bartok was heavily influenced by Scarlatti. Shostakovich was. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Without giving too much away, where do you hope the show goes from here? Well, we've already filmed episode one of season two. We, we filmed an episode on Haydn, and we explore the birth of the string quartet. There's so many string quartets, and string quartets such an important medium in, in, in classical music, and so we devote a whole episode to it. And in about a month, I'm starting filming uh, the fourth episode of season two, which will be on Schubert. And we're really excited about it, that as well. And then at some point, we'll hit Mozart and Beethoven. And we hope to start with the romantics in season three. Season three. Okay. You, you are looking ahead. Scott, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Scott Yu is the host and executive producer of Now Hear This. The first season airs on PBS Friday evenings through October 11th. Yu is also the conductor of the Colorado College Summer Music Festival. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. <laughs>